0: All right, so today's hard saying is difficult for reasons that are different than previous weeks. The previous hard sayings that we have addressed in the weeks before were difficult because of how people misinterpreted it or people have misapplied it. You've heard me say that people have cut through the knot instead of taking the time to untie the knot. This hard saying is difficult not because people rush through it and cut through it for a quick answer, but because Jesus' teaching is so clear right now, it unnerves us. It strikes down to the deepest chord inside of us. From the moment that you and I were born, we have been told that we are fundamentally good at our core. At the core of our being is a spark of the divinity, a spark of goodness. And throughout our lives, this idea has been fanned. We strive to maintain this idea, learn in our families, learn in our education system, learn on social media now, that you are, at your core, fundamentally good and ultimate authority as to what is best for your life. And American culture teaches us that despite doing bad things over and over again, that we are still fundamentally good. And we are appalled when the sirens arrive on our street for that neighbor down the road. We're like, he was always such a good person. And we're shocked that something bad would happen. This clashes with Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. Before we begin to untie Matthew 15, I want to peel back several chapters to Matthew 12 to something that Jesus also said, essentially to the very same audience. Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. And then we see this harsh language for religious people here. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Jesus makes it clear and straightforward using the images of trees and fruit. He speaks of two paths, two kinds of people. Good fruit comes from good trees, and bad fruit comes from bad trees. The point of Jesus is this. A person's external life proves what's going on in the internal life. So Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here, and he calls them brood of vipers. And he clearly tells them that evil cannot be good. We normally uh, point to the idea that sometimes there can be bad apples from the same tree, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He clearly tells them that evil cannot be good because whatever is produced reveals the kind. This means cherry trees don't produce apples and apple trees don't produce oranges. Jesus isn't trying to teach the saying of that sometimes bad fruit can come from the same tree. He's saying cherry trees don't produce apples and apple trees don't produce oranges. A tree bears fruit according to its kind. We would never expect for an apple tree to produce a nice Florida orange, right? But we apply this wrongly to people. Today's hard saying addresses what is in the deepest recesses of the human heart. And Jesus's hard saying challenges what our culture tells you and what you also tell yourself about yourself. We are gonna see today that The heart is dead, and the heart is cut off to what God originally designed it for. But then we see that out of God's mercy, he doesn't leave us there. Thank God for that, right? He gives us his son to redeem our hearts, and that's what we're going after today in Jesus' heart saying. So let's get to the proposition. You're going to see that Jesus alone is the one that can restore the heart's dead ability and desire to enjoy God as their ultimate satisfaction. This still seems like the very same thing I've been preaching since day one, isn't it? And we'll see Jesus' consistent message again today. So here's a context of the heart saying: The Pharisees and Scribes come to Jesus. Now, if you're doing our Bible reading for the year, you know what Peter Quiet time this morning? And I think it's by the providence of God. This was the passage we read today. If you're still with us, today's passage is Matthew 15. And here we are. I did not plan it this way, church. I did not. So the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus. They're angry right now. And they're angry with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And if you haven't read it yet, you may have read this passage before. Now, this is a big deal. Now, us in Western 21st century America, we're like, so What? What's so big about this? But this is a big deal for first century Jews because they value the tradition of their elders. It's Jewish tradition, in fact, even more than that, it's Jewish law to wash hands before you eat. So, why would this anger the Pharisees so much? Well, you got to think back to two weeks ago. The Pharisees condensed Jewish law down to six. 113 laws, and they made it their hearts to obey all of them perfectly. And Jesus comes up on the scene and tells you, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they obeyed 613 laws perfectly. That was two weeks ago. Their external righteousness was perfect, but they were dead on the inside. They may have had civic righteousness, now we're recounting two weeks ago, but they didn't possess spiritual righteousness. Jesus has harsh words like brood of vipers for those who attempt to give the appearance of true religion when it's not an inner spiritual reality. So Jesus tells us, in essence, that we are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. And this clashes with what American culture teaches you. This clashes with what your body teaches you. We excuse our behavior and the behavior of those that we love in our lives by saying they're good people. It's just that sometimes they do bad things. Jesus would say, no. Cherry trees bear cherries, apple trees bear apples. Good trees bear good fruits. Doesn't matter if the fruits this big. Cherry trees bear cherries. Therefore, we produce actions that dishonor God and what he's done for us because our hearts, which is the source of our life, is dead. And only Jesus can restore the hearts. So medication, philosophy, Addictive chemicals, therapy, external obedience to religion cannot change your hearts, and it cannot change my heart. Only Jesus can restore your heart by resurrecting your heart's dead ability and dead desire to enjoy God. This is what God created you for. This is what God created Adam and Eve for. And this is what you and I lost in Adam and Eve. Our spiritual heart died in Adam and Eve. Eve desired a piece of fruit over God, and Adam desired Eve over God. Now, all people at all places and all times desire things and people to satisfy their hearts in a way that only God can do. When we turn to things and to people to do for our hearts that which only God can do, the result is all of the evil all of the hurts, all the suffering that we have seen, all the horror of human history. So at the end of our sermon today, we are going to focus on the hope of what Jesus gives to us to resurrect those dead hearts, to find satisfaction in his Father for whom our hearts are created for. Amen? Amen. Let's do it. And I pray that it is encouraging to you today. Point one, you're going to see That a dead heart is responsible for all that you say and do. It's not the devil made me do it. We can't blame government, societal structures, injustices in society. A dead heart is responsible for all that we say and do. Guys, I want you to think back to Kindred last Sunday. What a wonderful time we had together, right? Snacking on French bread pizza and talking about James, the letter of James. James. And we spent a lot of time talking about the heart, didn't we? And about desires. And we learned and we, we talked about last Sunday that the presence of temptation doesn't necessarily mean that we are sinners or that we have sinned. What's coming from the outside in doesn't make us a sinner. It's when we give in to temptation to do things that are lasting God's best that it becomes sin. That's why Dr. Sproul would often say, and I say all the time for you, for one person, a game of golf can honor God, and for another person, a game of golf can be sin. It's because of this idea that James developed. We sin because we look to things, or we look to people for the ultimate satisfaction of our hearts that only God can produce for us. We sin because We hold other things as the greater authority in our lives than God. Why do we do this? Why is humanity this way? Well, Jesus will tell us it's because of our hearts. The seat of our motivations has a dead ability and a dead desire to enjoy God in a way that we are created to. Let's take a look at verse 17. Jesus tells these Pharisees, don't you understand? Everything that goes into the mouth passes to the stomach and is eliminated. Now, the Pharisees think Jesus' disciples are sinners because of something from the outside in. They're sinners because they violated one of the 613 Jewish laws. They didn't wash their hands before eating. Therefore, everything they ate was unclean, went inside of them, and made them unclean to their core. Jesus says, anything that enters into a person's mouth passes through the stomach and is eliminated. And it took... Judaism and the first Jewish Christians a while to come to this. And we are thankful that we can eat things like pig today. Bring the bacon, right? It doesn't make us unclean. It doesn't make us sinners for enjoying pork or pork ribs, right? Or pulled pork or pork belly, right? (laughs) Eating with unwashed hands doesn't make you unclean in the eyes of God. In fact, nothing we actually I gotta be careful here. Many things that we do externally does not make us unclean. It just draws out what's already going on inside of our hearts. That's the point of Jesus right here. Let's look at verse 18. So Jesus says, the things that proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart. And that is what defiles a man. So the heart makes a person unclean before God. The heart, specifically a dead heart, is responsible for all that we say and do. So here is what you need to see. Even though we have dead spiritual hearts, people can still love their spouses. They can still love their kids. They can still love their friends and family. Even though we have dead hearts, dead spiritual hearts, we can make great contributions to society. All of that is civic righteousness by which Luther has taught us. Civic righteousness, though, It's not spiritual righteousness. Jesus clearly says that what comes out of the mouth comes directly from the heart. What comes from the heart is what reveals sin. But Jesus is about to say it's not just what we say that reveals the heart. It's also what we do. So let's take a look at verse 19. Jesus says, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts. So we had the mental life, but then the rest are actions. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Jesus could go on and on and on with different actions, but I think we get the point. It is at this point that you and I need to define the heart. And traditionally, we define the heart as the spiritual seat, the spiritual throne of all of your motivations. Whatever is sitting on that throne is what Commands and what directs your life, whatever is seated on that heart and that throne. The heart is the motivation for what we turn to in this life and who we turn to in this life for ultimate satisfaction. But listen to what Jesus says here all that you do also comes from the heart. So the idea that you are fundamentally good at your core, it's just that you do bad things sometimes, it doesn't match. But on the other hand, external things don't make you into a sinner. So are murderers and adulterers and fornicators and thieves and false witnesses and slanderers sinners? Of course they are. Jesus is not saying that. But they aren't sinners because they do these things. They do these things because they are sinners. And they are sinners because they have Dead hearts. And because we have dead hearts, we turn to people and we turn to things to do for our heart, which God never created for them to do. So, culture has it wrong. We are not fundamentally good people who sometimes do bad things. We are fundamentally, spiritually dead people who can still do civic righteousness, but we turn to other things to do for us what only God can do for us as our creator. Those things and people cannot take the place of God in our hearts, though every single one of us is now wired because of Eve to give it a try. But we still use them to fill that emptiness, don't we? We still turn to those things to make us feel better. And when they cannot fill that emptiness, the result is murder and adultery, fornication, and so much more. Now let's look at verse 20. Jesus says, these are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus is clear, once again. Crystal clear here. It's not like last week. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. That was hard. The statement was hard. This is clear. It isn't the external to the internal that makes us sinners. It's the internal to the external that makes us sinners. Eating with unwashed hands doesn't mean the food is unclean, and when the food comes inside of you, you are now unclean. We are sinners because we come into this world with spiritually dead hearts. So let's make some connections for us as Christians here in Branchton. Because of this truth, we are not going to condemn people for their external actions. Do you see that? And can you see why? The condemnation doesn't lie in the action that they performed. So we're not going to condemn people for their actions. But on the other hand, we're not going to condone actions. We're not going to affirm action. We will instead be broken for the condition of the person's heart. Not be broken that they murdered someone alone. We'll be broken because they have dead, hard hearts. And we will pray to the only one who can resurrect it. Because one thing we all have in common is that we have inherited spiritually dead hearts from Adam and Eve. So the heart is dead, and it needs to be awakened. It needs to be resurrected. So we acknowledge here in Branchton that romantic relationships cannot resurrect your dead heart, no matter how sweet and precious they are. Family relationships cannot resurrect your dead heart no matter how supportive they are, no matter how encouraging they are. A socially acceptable lifestyle in America, and following what that lifestyle is, will not satisfy your heart. Money cannot resurrect your dead heart. We can go on and on and on. Alcohol and addictive chemicals cannot awaken the dead heart. Only the resurrected one, Jesus himself, can awaken dead hearts. And this is the hope that we're going to fixate on as we move to application right now. Okay? Let's get to it. And here's the hope. That Jesus frees your heart to pursue his Father as ultimate satisfaction. Jesus alone can free your heart and free my heart because he created our hearts so he can satisfy it. This is the promise we're going to explore in application. But before we get to how Jesus frees the heart of every Christian, I want to speak to the non-Christian. I want to speak to the one who is still seeking ultimate satisfaction in created things above the creator who made them in his image. And I want to use two quotes from some of my favorite writers, St. Augustine and C.S. Lewis, to help you see that your heart was never meant to find ultimate satisfaction in romance and family and money and food and drink and chemicals and fun and hobbies. Though some of those things are good things. They're not ultimate. So here's Augustine. Augustine says this. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Anybody read that Proverbs devotional yesterday? One. Dr. Keller actually quoted from Augustine. Once he did not plan this this way, my manuscript was done on Tuesday. It's like I forecasted and used it. What I praise you see the synergy of how God works all things, even our corporate readings for our corporate good. Before Augustine was a Christian, he based his life off of exactly what Roman society told him to do and what his flesh told him to do. He gave his mind and his body to secular philosophies. He gave Greek philosophy a try. He did. He gave his appetites to food and drink and drunkenness. He did it. He pursued all of his sexual appetites. You can read about it in his autobiography. He's very vivid and upfront about it. He did it. He did everything that his body and his society told him to do, and it left him empty, and it left him restless. It wasn't until one day he was visiting his mom, and in her back garden, there was the book of Romans, and he read it, that he realized that those things he used to give his life to were never meant to provide rest for his heart, It was never meant for him to find ultimate satisfaction. Augustine now knew that God had to move him to delight in God. Augustine now knew that God created Augustine for himself. God created Augustine for God. And Augustine knew that his heart would always be anxious. It would always be fretting. It would always be restless until he put his ultimate hope, his ultimate rest in God. Now that's Augustine. Now let's talk about C.S. Lewis for a moment. Lewis writes, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promises. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that good? See how it connects with the teaching of Jesus here? Lewis was an atheist. Let's be clear. Atheist. He was too smart for Christianity. He believed the explanation of life was natural selection. He rejected God. He rejected religion. He believed truth was relative and subjective. He gave his life to this and he taught the next generation of students this at Oxford until God brought someone into Lewis's life to invest in him. And it was a Catholic by the name of J.R.R. R. Tolkien. That's why I love these two so much. God used Tolkien to change Lewis's heart with the gospel. Lewis was able to look back on all of his previous pursuits of life all his previous pursuits of satisfaction, all the fruitless efforts to find satisfaction for his heart in this world, and he concluded that he is so dissatisfied because his heart wasn't made for this world. Lewis is echoing Augustine, and Augustine echoes Paul and Jesus. This world and your flesh will tempt you to experience ultimate satisfaction outside of God, and you can give the rest of your life to it. You can walk out of this place today and say, Pastor, is wrong. People are good, fundamentally good. We just sometimes do bad things. And you'll be confronted with the newspaper and your social media feed for the rest of your life presenting evidence that contradicts this thing you choose to believe. You were created by God for God. You were created for another world. That's why your heart is so restless. It's because you need the next fix. It's because you need Jesus. You need to know that your life is not your own. You're just passing through. So romantic relationships will not truly resurrect your dead heart. The family you so want to have, this picture-perfect family, it will not awaken your dead heart. Money will not resurrect your dead heart. Addictive chemicals cannot resurrect your dead heart. And the reason why you'll never find ultimate satisfaction in those things is that you were made for another world? God made you for Himself, and your heart will always be anxious and restless until you find what it means to rest in Him above all of those things. This world cannot give to you what your heart really needs. Jesus alone can free you to pursue God for who He is, Creator sustainer, life giver, and the source of your ultimate satisfaction. That's why Jesus came on flesh, so he could say that he's the bread of life. He's living water. This is God's new covenant work in us through Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, God gives us this new heart. He removes the old and dead heart, and he replaces it with a new heart that has a desire to know, love, and follow God in his word. As we've spoken about so much here at Heritage, we have new hearts, we have new spirits, but we have old flesh, right? This is different, though, and this is where I'm trying to give you some hope. This is different than what Jesus is addressing in the Pharisee because it's old, dead, hard heart and old flesh. The struggle of the Christian is something different. We still sin. But it's not because we have old, hard, dead hearts. It's because we're stuck in old flesh. We are saved, but we are still being saved. And we will be saved at the second advent of Jesus. Let's see how Paul understood this and wrote about this for our instruction and for our hope. In Romans 7, Paul says this. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body. Do you see that? Waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Amen? Let's get to some hope now. Paul is a genuine Christian, but it's clear he has a battle going on inside of him. But it's not the Pharisees' battle. Old flesh, old dead, heart, heart. The Christian battle is a battle of new heart versus old flesh. So if you were spiritually dead for 30 years, this means you spent 30 years turning to other things, turning to other people to do things for your body, to do things for your heart that it was never intended to do, and that stuff doesn't go away overnight. It may stick and persist and challenge you for the next 30 years. That's waging war, right? But when you become a Christian, you now have a desire for Jesus that you didn't have before. No one comes into this world thinking, Jesus, I want you above all things. God creates this in us. It's proof that he's alive and working in us still. But when you take those old things away that you've been turning to for 30 years, your body is going to crave. Your heart is going to lust. And this sets up the war between the new heart and the old flesh. God gave Paul a new heart for Jesus. Remember, Paul once hated Jesus, and he hated those who loved and followed Jesus. He saw Jesus and Jesus' followers as a direct threat to the survival of Judaism. He hated them. But now Paul lives for Jesus. And Paul, in living for Jesus, still finds a principle operating in his body. His heart has been changed. God has given him the desire to do good, but there's still evil present in him. It's not in his heart. It's in his members, in his flesh. His body wants one thing. His body craves one thing because he turned to that one thing his whole life. But his heart, his spirit that God put into him wants something else. Paul acknowledges something here that I pray that God gives every single genuine Christian here the courage to acknowledge. Paul acknowledges and says, wretched man that I am. And I pray that God gives you the ability to look at your own wretchedness. You and I aren't good people fundamentally you sometimes do bad things. Paul was perfect according to the law, and he found himself to be the chief of sinners wretched man that I am. American culture says you are good. So what will you have the courage to believe when you leave this place today? Paul asks a question. He asks, who will set me free from this body? And Paul's answer is still the same today. The same person who changed Paul, who resurrected Paul's dead heart, is the same person who will set you free from the desires of your flesh, and if you still have that old, the dead heart. Every person, even Paul, even you, even me, has a desire in our bodies to set anyone, anything is God, as the object of our ultimate affections. But those things will never satisfy. So the presence of murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander, and more, it simply proves what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying. The presence of these things in human history doesn't make us into sinners. It just simply proves our wretchedness. It proves that our hearts are dead, that the humanist philosophers have it wrong. And America has drunk the Kool-Aid of Greek humanism, humanism philosophy. We aren't good people who sometimes do bad things. We are wretched people, and there's no thing and no one on earth that can change us. So who can set us free? Paul's answer is clear. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can resurrect dead hearts. The Pharisees didn't get this. They're still stuck on, I got 613 things to do. If I do it perfectly, God will accept me. But That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus takes on flesh to those 613 things and more for the basis of your acceptance. He does, not you. The Pharisees didn't get this. They couldn't see past hand washing. But the question is, what about you? What about you? Are you going to walk out of here today continuing to think that you're, we are good people who just sometimes do bad things? And then we're shocked and awed every single time we see the headlines. Of the evil, the wretchedness in human history? Are you going to think that cherry trees bear rotten apples? Thing is, it is safer and easier for you to walk out of this place today and continue to believe that. But here's the thing. You will never be satisfied. You will continue to struggle with anxiety. You will con- continue to struggle with restlessness. Or are you going to focus on the internal? Are you going to say it's not the external one to focus on? It's going to be the, the soul, the qualities of the soul, developing the soul, developing the heart. Will you agree with Augustine? Will you agree that your heart is restless until it finds its ultimate rest in God and God alone? Will you agree with Lewis? Will you agree that the reason why everything you have tried in this world hasn't satisfied your heart is that it's because you were made for another world? Will you agree with Lewis? And will you agree with Paul? Will you agree that your heart is dead and it can only be set free by Jesus? And ultimately, will you agree with Jesus? If you do, Jesus will restore that dead heart. Jesus will become your ultimate satisfaction. And your heart will find rest in Jesus. But here's the thing, Jesus doesn't just stop at that one event, that moment of your coming to Jesus that we call salvation. Jesus will provide for you like he did in Paul's war. He will provide for you in your war between the heart and the flesh, your old body and this new heart. And when your body starts to fight against your heart, Jesus will be there time and time again. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.